Our message comes today from Matthew 11, 1 through 15. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach into the town of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive light, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on the account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into this wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes. No, those who wear fine clothes are in the king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one whom is written. And I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare you your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those who are born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of the heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence. The violent people have been raiding it for all the prophets, the laws, and prophesied until John. And if you are willing to, to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Thanks, Maddie Underwood, for reading this morning. That's pretty brave to do that this morning. Well, good morning, everybody. This is a story this morning about doubt. And there's not that many things that if you poll Christians, you can get them to agree on. I always love looking at polling data, and you're like, these people, what binds these people together, honestly? Because you look at polling data, and everybody's experience is a little bit different. Everybody does their Christian walk a little bit different. Of course, we agree on doctrinal things, but everybody's Christian experience is relatively different. But if there's one thing that really does unite Christians, it's that almost everybody has seasons of doubt, discouragement, disillusionment, disappointment, spiritual depression. In fact, there was a Barna study a couple of years ago, and they found that 70% of people were currently or had just previously walked through a season of doubt. And the thing that they found is the most important factor is not whether or not you have a season of doubt, it's what you do about it. And they found that actually a lot of people go through a season of doubt and it never gets any better. They said when encountering doubt, 45% of people stop attending church, 29% stop reading the Bible, 29% stop praying. And these are probably the same group of people. These people are doing the trifecta. This isn't individual groups of people. It's like somebody who feels like they're getting out of shape that stops exercising, drinking water, and eating well. I mean, it's like this is the worst thing you could do because if you're in this group and you feel a season of doubt coming on, only half of the people who experience doubt feel like they come out of it. And what's the difference in that half? 53% of people who go through a season of doubt felt that when they turned to the Lord, they grew in their season of doubt. When they turned to the Lord, they grew in their season of doubt. So this morning, I want to bring the last story of these Old Testament characters. And those of you who are in Awana as a kid are like, well, this is in the Gospel of Matthew. This is not an Old Testament character. 
This is John the Baptist who is the last Old Testament character because he is the forerunner for Christ. Jesus says in this passage he is the greatest person who was born before he came and preached the gospel, before he died and rose from the dead. And John the Baptist struggled with doubt. This is a story about the greatest man before Christ who is in a season of doubt. You know, it's often the great people of the faith who struggle with doubt. I think of Charles Spurgeon, who was one of the great preachers in Britain in the 19th century. He's known as the Prince of Preachers. And every year of his ministry, at some point, he was out of commission because he so struggled with depression. And I think about this, it's sometimes when you are going through a tough season like that, you think it's because you're a weak, shallow Christian. If I were just a stronger person, if I were just a stronger Christian, maybe this wouldn't happen. And I came across somebody talking about this this week, and they said, you know, you never see a hurricane in a sidewalk puddle. You never see a giant typhoon on Lake Eufaula. You actually have to have more depth than that to produce these great storms. And sometimes it's the people who do the most for God, who have followed him the most closely, who have given their life, who have seen God do amazing things that then fall into the worst storms of their faith. And John is certainly one of those people. Let's take a look at John's life. So before this story, we know a lot about John. He is the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He is, he is Jesus' cousin. He also has a God-inspired story about his birth. His parents are barren, they're priests, and God gives them a vision that they're going to have a son and he's going to be special. He's going to be the person who announces that God is finally coming back for his people. So John grows up and he goes out into the wilderness and he begins preaching the gospel of repentance. He says, repent and come and be baptized and return to God. And in fact, we don't get this as much from the gospels, but if you read closely, you realize there's probably not a more famous person in this area, in this time, than John the Baptist. Because if you're living this in real time, you don't know what's coming next. See, we read the gospels, we're like, all right, we get through these early chapters, we get to Jesus, he's the main event. But if you were living at that time, this prophet just arose out in the wilderness and he is proclaiming the word of God and Everybody, it says, everybody from the surrounding areas is going out to see John. And he is baptizing people in the hundreds. I mean, the rulers are coming out to see what is all this commotion around John the Baptist. So he has this huge ministry. He's seeing people come and repent and turn. And one day, Jesus shows up. He baptizes Jesus. It's just this amazing revival in history. And all of a sudden, things go in a different direction for John. In fact, from the moment he baptizes Jesus, his entire life basically takes a 180 U-turn back to um, a season of obscurity and doubt and insignificance. See, one of the things that happened was his followers started following Jesus. This is good, and I think this is something that John was really excited about. And he said to his disciples, he must increase and I must decrease. But then that started to become a little bit too true. He had decreased so much that nobody was really following him anymore. They were all following Jesus, which started out as being a good thing. It's like being servant-hearted is really good until people start treating you like a servant. And then you're like, hey, guys, I just really wanted to be servant-hearted because people love servant-hearted people. Now I'm like too much on the servant part of this. And you get walked on and you realize, like, if you want to be a servant, you've got to be treated like a servant. And John wanted to be the forerunner, and he wanted to point people to Christ, and then all of a sudden... As he was pointing, nobody was looking at him anymore. And we don't hear about him much anymore. 
Beyond that, he went and did what God called him to do. He was a prophet. Jesus says he's the greatest prophet. And one of the things the prophets do is they take God's word and they speak it to the people that God says to speak it to. So he takes God's word from Isaiah and all over the Old Testament and he begins to proclaim repentance. And what God leads him to do is to take the other most powerful man in the country at that point, Herod Antipas, and he calls him out for taking his brother's wife. Now, the Herods are a family that rules all through the life of Jesus. You probably remember in the beginning, there's Herod the Great. He's reigning. He's a king in this area under Rome. And he's the one that puts the babies to death. He's the one that they have to wait until he dies to come back from Egypt. Well, his sons split up the kingdom, and they are even worse than their dad. I can't believe that there hasn't been an HBO series on the Herod family because what happens with Antipas is he goes to Rome sees his brother, sees his brother's wife, seduces her, brings her back to Judea, and marries her. And so what John the Baptist does is says, you shouldn't be doing that. That's not right. That's, and they were proclaiming that they were God's rulers, God's people, that they were good Jews. And John says, no way. That's not what God wants for you. Well, doing God's will like that is all well and good, and he did what God called him to do, but he also encountered circumstances. So what did Herod do? Well, he hears that John's saying this, and he confronts him about it, so he puts him in prison. And he doesn't just put him in any prison. He puts him in the fortress of Machairos, which is on the east side of the Dead Sea. It is desolate. It is hot. It is arid. There's nothing around there. There's nobody to hear about what you're doing, nobody to talk to. It is completely out of the picture. And Herod is fine just to leave him there. And so we don't know exactly how long he's there, but he is out of favor with the people. He's put in prison. And probably what got to John the most is the kingdom wasn't taking off like he thought it would. The kingdom just isn't growing the way he thought it was. He came in and he said, repent and turn to God. And he expected this giant revival of people. And we know from reading about John, he didn't just expect the people to turn. He expected God to do something incredible because all these people were returning to him. Probably what John wanted was judgment. If you look at what he's talking about with these people, he says, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. The Pharisees come out and he says, you brood of vipers, and he is ready for fire and brimstone. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and there's no fire and brimstone. And John's like, I set the table for you. I I already laid this out. Where's God acting? And John realizes, things are not going the way I thought they would go. God's not doing what I wanted him to to do. Jesus hasn't kicked off the Romans. He hasn't demolished the religious elite. He hasn't even figured out a way to free his cousin from prison yet. What is going on with God right now? And so John, in the depths of his despair, in our passage today, he sends a couple of his followers to talk to Jesus. And he says, are you the one or should we look for somebody else? It's like in our vernacular today, we might say, is this it? Because I expected something different. Are you the guy that has been promised? Because it doesn't really look like you're doing what God promised that he would do. See, the root of disappointment and doubt is often expecting God to do something in your life and waiting and waiting and waiting and not seeing it happen. A lot of times we go through seasons of discouragement and doubt because we believe, but then we don't see We trust God, 
then he doesn't do what we thought he should be doing. It's like the guy in the Gospels who says, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's a season of doubt and disappointment. And so the messengers come to Jesus, and they ask him this question. They said, are you the guy? Because you don't really fit the job description. And Jesus says, okay, I want you to go tell John a few things. And what Jesus does in this story is he shows all of us through John what to do when you're in a season of doubt. And here's what he reminds him. The first thing is Jesus reminds him who to listen to. Jesus reminds him who he needs to listen to. You know, I think probably at the root of a lot of these seasons for us is we just want some kind of answer. It's like, God, I'm just waiting. I'm hoping that you haven't forgotten about me. I hope that you're still kind of in on this Christianity thing because it really seems like you're not right now. If you would just answer, then this whole thing would be gone. And what Jesus does is he does answer John, but he doesn't give him exactly what he probably wanted to hear. Instead, what he does is he quotes scripture to John. And this is almost always what Jesus does. And you would think for a moment, Jesus is the eternal word of God. He is the wisdom of God. He's great at speaking extemporarily. He doesn't need prepared remarks. He could just say something profound and awesome to John. But instead, when Jesus finds himself in these situations, he almost always goes back and quotes Scripture. So think about when when Jesus is in the wilderness, and the devil comes, and he begins to tempt Jesus. What does Jesus do? Jesus could have snapped his fingers and just dissipated the devil if he wanted to. I mean, he is not really outmatched in this season of his life, but he says, haven't you read in Deuteronomy that man shall not live from bread alone? In fact, the weapons that Jesus brings to this fight are the book of Deuteronomy. It's like of all the Old Testament books, really, Deuteronomy? I mean, but that was one that he knew inside and out because it's all about the promises of God to his people. When he has an encounter with the Pharisees, Instead of just browbeating the Pharisees, oftentimes he says this. Have you not read? Have you not read where it says this and this and this? Go go figure out what this means and then come talk to me. Which would have been the ultimate slap in the face to people that probably had all those passages memorized. But they didn't understand what they meant. So Jesus takes the same approach here that he did in almost every area of his life. He goes back to what God has already told us. And he says, go tell John, and he begins to quote from Isaiah chapter 61 about what the Messiah will be like and what he will be doing. You know, if there's one thing we know about John, it's that he knew the scriptures. He knew his Bible. Almost everything we have him saying in the Bible is a quote from somewhere in scripture. In fact, we know John's life verse, Isaiah 40, verse 3. He quotes this all the time. This is who he thinks he is. And Jesus confirms this is who he is. A voice crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up and every mountain will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough surfaces will become a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John is just captivated by this passage. He knows that this is what God has on his life, is to be the person who announces and makes straight the highway for God to come back into Judea. Well, Jesus quotes from about 20 chapters later in Isaiah chapter 61, and he says, here's what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. He says, go and tell John, the blind are receiving their sight, the lame are walking, the lepers are being cleansed, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised up, the poor are having good news preached to them. And you've got to imagine when this, when this gets back to John, he's like, yeah, but what about the judgment? What about the judgment? Because John really wanted to see the second half 
of that passage. And the evildoers, the enemies of God, will be done away with. And the glory of the Lord will fill the earth so that people will know this is God. He's going to vindicate his people. But Jesus is saying, you got to remember what God's plan is. See, the thing about Jesus is he doesn't always do things exactly the way that you think he should be doing them. And the most important thing for John is you got to remember who to listen to. Not our instincts, not the way we think things should be done, not the way the world thinks things should be done. We've got to remember the way that God does things, and we've got to listen to his voice. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones was, after Spurgeon, but also a British preacher in the early 20th century, wrote a whole book called Spiritual Depression. And this is not a book on clinical depression. This is like what we're talking about today, doubt and disappointment and those seasons where you're not really seeing God do what you think he's going to do. And in this book, he, he makes an incredible point if you're walking through a season like this. He says, have you noticed that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment when you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they're talking to you. They have problems of yesterday, etc., and somebody is talking. Who is talking? Who's doing the talking? Yourself is talking to you. And he goes to Psalm 42, which is such a great example of taking those thoughts and saying, no, I, I'm actually going to talk for a minute. Look at the author in Psalm 42. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he begins talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. He asks his soul why he's been depressing him, crushing him, and he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I want to speak to you. This is what your Bible does to you every day. Stop talking for a minute and have God speak to your soul. Stop listening to all the voices of everyone else and listen to the voice of God. This other man within us, he says, he has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn, off, turn him off. Speak to him. Condemn him. Upbraid him. Exhort him. Remind him of what you know instead of listening placidly to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you. The first thing that John had to know, the first thing we've got to be reminded of, is you've got to know who to listen to. You've got to stop listening to those other voices. You've got to start listening to God. But Jesus goes beyond that. He opens that way, and then he reminds John of what God's plan actually is. What is God's plan? What has God really promised? There's nothing that leads to disappointment faster in your life than thinking God has promised something that he hasn't really promised. This is a key to disappointment in God. If you think that God is going to do something and he's never promised that and you hold him to that, you will always end up in disappointment. So John needs to be reminded of what God has actually promised. The kingdom is coming. It showed up. It really is happening. But it's not a crush the Romans immediately kind of kingdom. It's a mustard seed kind of kingdom. It's the kind of seed that falls on the ground and over time with water and sunlight and the right kind of nutrients can come up and break through the sidewalk and crack the strongest foundation from a tiny little seed. That's what the kingdom of God is like. But John wanted a backhoe kind of kingdom that just comes in and rips it all up at once. He just wanted to see God do decisively what he wanted him to do, and Jesus said, that's actually not the way we're going to do things. John's problem was he saw the right ends, but he couldn't see God's means. Right? He knew where God was going, but he didn't really know the way. He knew the destination, but he had picked the wrong route to get there. A few years ago, I ended up meeting part of our family in Colorado, and so I was driving with my parents all the way to Colorado from Oklahoma City. And 
if you know anything about our family, we are all very opinionated people. We all have multiple opinions about everything, especially when it comes to how to drive and how to go places. So my dad and I are in the front seat, and I'm driving, and my mom is in the back seat, and we are having what's now become a two-hour conversation about the merits of Google Maps versus Apple Maps. And we are on Google Maps, and she is on Apple Maps, and we have been arguing about how to get to this place in Colorado for hours. And so finally, it just gets to this boiling point where I was like, look, I don't want to hear anything else about it. We're, I'm driving. We're going my way. It's, your way is an hour longer. If we just take this route, we're going to get there, no problem. So we're in southern New Mexico at this point, and we are going down this road that for some reason is like a 55, but it's night, and we've got places to go, so we're going 85. And all of a sudden, we get pulled over. So the police officer comes up to the window, and we roll down the window, and she says, you know, what are you guys doing? Trying to get to Colorado. She's like, well, you need to slow down a little bit. And uh, I said, yeah, that's, that's great. And she's getting ready to leave, and a voice from the back seat, can I ask you a question? And I'm like biting off my tongue at this point. And she said, we've been having a little discussion in the car about how to get to this place. Could you give us any advice on which way is best? And so we show her what we've got on the map, and this police officer's like, oh, you, you cannot go the short way. That road actually washed out last week. It is gravel now. You will, probably, you will not be able to make it through there if, if you go that way. You've got to go the long way. Okay, thank you, officer. Roll up the window, get back up to about 54 miles an hour, and I'm just waiting, just waiting. All of a sudden, I hear, so, <laughs> looks like we'll be going my way. And it, like the rest of the time, I don't think I said a single thing in the car because I realized there's no, there's no arguing now. She was right. We were wrong. We went the long way. It took us way longer than it should have. I, we had four-wheel drive. I think we could have made it. But... Um, <laughs> It was, the thing about that story, though, is we, there was no disagreement on where we were going. We all knew where we were going. We actually all knew all the routes to get there. What we disagreed on was, is this road passable or not? Is this little bitty road on the map passable? Is this a legitimate way to get there? And what John doesn't realize is the route that he has picked to get to the full kingdom of God is a washed out road that you cannot pass. And what Jesus is doing is saying, it's going to take a little bit longer but if you trust what God is doing, do you see what's actually happening? Because in John's way, we would never be here. In John's way, what would have happened is the kingdom arrives, judgment happens, you believe or you don't, the door is closed, God is reigning, and if you're not in, you're not in. And what Jesus said is what God is doing is he is allowing space for people to come and know him through his crucified son. Think about this, Israel all the time knows what God is doing, but they're not sure about how God is going to do it. Like when they come back from the exile, they build this temple, and the people arrive that had seen the old temple, and they, they show up and they're like, this is a shanty temple, this is terrible, this doesn't have any of the stuff that the old temple had, how are we going to worship here? And God raises up a prophet named Zechariah in chapter 4, he says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit is how you're going to worship. Not by the way the other kingdoms of the world do it. Not by the way that you're accustomed to doing it. Only by my spirit. And you'll see that I'll accomplish my word. 
God does this all the time in the Bible, and I'm constantly being refreshed about what God is going to do in our context. And I was talking to a pastor friend the other day about their outreach, and I was like, what is your plan? How are you going to change the town that you're in? How are you going to be missional? How are you going to see God work? And he laughed a little bit. He says, here's what we do. We worship God. We have families. We teach them to love and serve him. We share our testimonies when we get the opportunity. We teach people to love and obey God, and we wait a few hundred years. I was like, what? And he was like, that's pretty much God's plan, don't you think? I mean, that's what Jesus sent his disciples to do. Fulfill the Great Commission, teach people to love God, obey him, share your testimony, and then wait now 2,000 years, which would have made no sense at the time. Like, I mean, it's going to be longer than like our lifetime or like our grandkids. If Jesus had told them at that moment, oh, yeah, I mean, by the year 2022, they're not even halfway there. (laughs) What would we have thought at that point? Jesus knows the way he's going to accomplish it. It's only by his spirit. And we've got to be reminded in seasons of doubt that we may know where God is going, we may know what he has promised, but we've often got to be corrected about how he's going to do it. I mean, who would have guessed that Jesus was going to conquer his enemies by making them his friends, by allowing them to repent? Who thought that Jesus was going to conquer death by dying? What a crazy plan. He's going to conquer death forever. How is he going to do that? By being humiliated and strung up on a cross and dying and rising from the dead so that nobody ever has to stay dead again after that. What a crazy plan. How is he going to be exalted? He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He is going to be at the right hand of the Father forever. How is that going to happen? By coming to earth and being made nothing, being trampled on, spit on, made fun of, the lowest of the low, being totally and utter humiliated. That's how he's going to become the exalted king of the universe. Okay, God, I get the ends, but sometimes I don't understand the means. I don't understand why you chose to do it that way. But remind me of the way that you do things in seasons of doubt. Here's the last thing. So he reminds John of the scriptures. He reminds him of the way God does things. And then he reminds him of who he was. He reminds him of who he was. This is a hugely gracious merciful act of Jesus. So John the Baptist sends people to say, are you really the guy? Jesus could have responded so many ways, like, don't be like this guy. That's what Jesus could have said. Don't have doubts like this guy. But instead he says, hey, go tell John, remind him of what God's promised. And then he starts building John up. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, when they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. This is like not even stuff that's getting back to John at this point because the disciples are already gone. He's just saying this because he loves John. And he's saying it for our benefit too. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? This seems like really weird when you read this. You're like, okay, I mean, yeah, a reed shaken by the wind. What you've got to know is at this time, the guy that had imprisoned John is named Herod Antipas. And right before this, he had commissioned coins for his rule in this area. And on the backside of his coins was a reed blowing in the wind. That was his symbol, was a swaying reed. And in fact, this is just a perfect thing for him because he was one of those people that always had his finger in the wind. If Rome wanted this, he would do this. If other people wanted this, he would do this. And so he goes, and this is such a dig from Jesus' part, saying, who'd you go out to see? Somebody like Herod Antipas? that you can never trust, somebody that only does what's in their best interest? Did you go to see somebody who only exercises worldly power? 
No, no, you didn't go out to see somebody like that. Did you go out to see somebody that's only ever in the palace with their nice clothes on? No, you went out to see a guy that's dressed in camel hair and a leather belt and he's eating locusts and honey. You went out to see somebody who's really committed, not just because of what it can do for them, really committed to God's word. Did you go out there to see a prophet? Oh, yeah. More than just a prophet, more than just your run-of-the-mill prophet, he is the prophet. He's the one that Malachi said, behold, I will send my messenger before God returns. Before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come again, and he says, and I tell you what, guys, this guy is like Elijah. This is the greatest, he says. No one born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. What an affirmation from Jesus. This is, again, a reminder to us. It's not just the weak Christians among us who struggle with doubt. John the Baptist is the greatest pre-Christian, greatest Old Testament person who goes through this. And then he says this, and the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. The least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. This is the last week we're doing our series of Old Testament uh, people and talking about the promises of God. And one of the themes that we've kept coming back to is what made the people of God in the Old Testament was they believed what God had promised even when they didn't get to see it. So Abraham leaves his home, goes to the promised land before he knows where it is. It says in John chapter 8, he saw the day of Christ and rejoiced in it, but he didn't get to physically see it. He only believed God spiritually. In Hebrews chapter 11, it goes through this whole catalog of people that they all believed by faith, but they didn't get to see what was promised, except John. John is the last and the greatest because he is in the closest proximity to what God had promised for all of those years, and he actually got to see God doing it. But even John didn't get to be there at the resurrection of Christ. Even John died just short of seeing the promised land. This is, you know, the comparison with Elijah is great because Elijah, the most famous story we talked about a couple of weeks ago is the prophets of Baal. Elijah shows up, he challenges all the false gods, he says, bring all the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and then he calls down fire, God answers, it's this amazing, wonderful time, and the next thing we hear in the next chapter is Jezebel, the evil queen Jezebel, threatens his life, and he runs for the wilderness. He's on this, like, amazing mountaintop experience he sees God do the unimaginable, and it's amazing, and all of a sudden, Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you for what you did, and Elijah turns tail and runs, goes to the wilderness, says, I wish I were dead. God cooks him breakfast, he lives there for 40 days, and then he goes further into the wilderness, and you know what? The story of Elijah doesn't end that well. He actually doesn't ever really come back into prominence. In fact, he doesn't really even do what God told him to do about anointing these kings, but instead, God brings him up in chariots of fire to wait for what he had promised. And Moses is the same way. Moses is like the greatest person of leading Israel. And it says at the end that he got to the edge of the promised land, he got to see the promised land, but because he had sinned, he didn't get to go in. And God himself buried Moses and gives us this great little eulogy at the end of the book of Deuteronomy about him. He's this amazing guy, but he got to see, but he didn't get to go in. And then something really amazing happens. Actually, right around this in the Gospel of Matthew, we hear about this story called the Transfiguration. And the Transfiguration is a, is a fancy way of saying Jesus, for a split second, gets to show us what his glorious, kingly reign will look like. All of a sudden, he starts shining and glowing, and he's glorious. And guess who appears with him? 
Moses and Elijah, who finally, this is such a cool thing that God did. They didn't get to see God's promise. They didn't really get to go in to God's promise. But right before Jesus died and rose, God brought them back and said, take a look, fellas. This is the promise you are waiting for. This is what I'm about to do. This is the guy. This is my son. This is the eternal son of God who will die for the sins of the world. And I want you to see this before it happens. There's a reason that John the Baptist is compared to Elijah. He too sees the highest of highs and experiences the lowest of lows. In fact, John's life does not end well. John stays in this prison for the rest of his life. Jesus never breaks him out. And Herod is having a party, and a girl dances, and he's so enamored that he wants to give her some kind of reward. And she says, my reward is the head of John the Baptist. And the king doesn't. Beheads John the Baptist, that's it. No fanfare, no nothing. But the amazing thing about John the Baptist is he dies in relative obscurity and wakes up in glory and wakes up in glory. He's joined by the likes of Elijah and Noah and Moses and Abraham and the people who trusted God when they didn't get to see, and they all got that front row seat to see the Son of God dying for his people, rising up, being ascending to the right hand of the Father, reigning over everything, and they get to see it. Their death in the moment seemed like a failure, but God's means was to take their faith and make sure that they got to be with him forever. John is the greatest of the people that that happened to, but he's nothing compared to the least of the people who get to live with the Holy Spirit in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Every person who's actually gotten to know and hear about what God did through Jesus is even greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was like a forerunner. He was like taking the beachhead, but he didn't make it all the way to the end, and we now get to live after that war. Laura and I watched a movie this weekend called The Most Reluctant Convert. Has anybody seen this? It's about C.S. Lewis. It's just an amazing movie. I I want you guys to watch it. At the end of the movie, it's about C.S. Lewis's conversion from being a doubter to being a believer. And he says, you know, I was probably the most reluctant convert in all of England. That's where they get the name of the movie because he struggled so much to believe. And then finally, he did. God opened his eyes. And he says in the end of that movie, he says, I concluded that if I find, myself, find in myself a desire that no experience in this world could satisfy, the most probable explanation was, I was made for another world. At present, we're on the outside of that world, the wrong side of the door. We cannot imagine what it will be like mingling the splendors we will see there, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it won't always be the way it is now. One day, God willing, we will get in. Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown. It's the way God does things. And tomorrow is another morning. And a cleft has opened up in the pitiless walls of the world. And we have been invited to follow our great captain inside. Following him is, of course, the essential point. So Jesus reminds John there's a breach in the wall. And anyone who gets to follow me can come in and be with me forever. I want to end going back to Charles Spurgeon. He realized the same things that John did. He realized the importance of being reminded of these things. And one of the banner quotes of his life that I want to leave you with this morning, if you're going through a season of doubt, disappointment, discouragement, to be reminded of who God is, what he's done, what our role is in the story, and to be reminded, as Spurgeon said, all of my sufferings have led me to this point. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages.
as Becca comes back up to lead us in worship, one of the things we're going to do this morning is we're going to take time to pray for our own hearts or those that we know that are in one of these seasons. So if the statistics are true, this room is full of people who are struggling, full of people who are disappointed, who are wondering if God's going to come through. And if that's you this morning, we want to make time to pray for that. And so as we worship, if you want to pray alone for that, great. If you want to go to God and be reminded of who he is and what he says he's going to do in our lives. And if you want to be prayed for, there's so many people in here that will be available to pray. There's a bunch kind of in the front on the sides. We've got Joe and Marcy over here, Kerwin and Nancy over here, Bert and Heather are over here, and so many others in this room. If you want to be prayed for, if you're in this season, come. Go to God. Ask him to remind you who he is, what he's done. Have some people surround you and begin to speak those things into your life as well. So let's stand together, and if you need prayer, come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of John the Baptist, who was so great among the people who didn't get to see, but Lord, we get to see. We know your resurrected son. We know your Holy Spirit. We know your promise. We know you're coming back for us. So Father, this morning, Lord, I pray especially for people who are going through a rough time, people who can't really see what you're up to. People are just so tired and frustrated and exhausted that they need a fresh wind of your spirit this morning. So Father, I ask that your spirit and your word would be so present in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that we would remember who we are in you, what you're doing in us, where you're taking us. Father, I pray that you would give encouragement this morning, that you would give comfort that you would give the peace that passes all understanding this morning. In Jesus' name.